Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder. Before we start this episode, we drew much of our information from Peter Lance's wonderful book, Homicide at Rough Point. His dogged investigation of the Doris Duke case has led to a new witness and a reopening of the case. Okay, so welcome back. Yes, welcome back to Ivy League Murders. So Laura and I recently toured Doris Duke's mansion at Rough Point in Newport. This is one of these beautiful, huge mansions. It overlooks a cliff walk. It's on Bellevue Ave. It's right on the Atlantic Ocean. And Bellevue Ave is what they call Millionaire's Avenue today, but they used to call it Millionaire's Avenue. <laughs> That's when Newport. millionaire meant something. <laughs> That's when millionaire. But these are like estates. These are like castles. These are absolute castles. We'll, we'll post what this looks like. But when I went there, I couldn't fit it. The estate wouldn't fit in my camera. Yes, that's right. Yeah. right. Even in a landscape. I mean, that's how large it is. I know, but I think going through it, and it's now a museum, really struck me is for all of its beauty and its glamour, you can just feel the real echoing loneliness in its walls. And I wonder, was it the fear of being lonely that drove Doris Duke to run over her companion, Eduardo Torella, in 1963? Yeah, this is an old case that we're digging up, Sarah. Well, we're digging it up because there's now new evidence that this was not the, quote, accident that the poor heiress had to live through. So they found new stuff on this case. And you've probably heard Doris Duke's name, you know, the Doris Duke Foundation, and it's a wonderful foundation. I looked it up. It's supporting AIDS research. It was arts, child welfare, animal welfare. I think most people are familiar with Duke University. Absolutely. So yes, I mean, her fortune has benefited people far and wide. Absolutely, but however generous her foundation is, she herself was the, quote, wealthiest girl in the world. And she was. She was a tobacco heiress, Doris Duke was. But she was also a notorious penny pincher. Doris Duke was fascinating. She's such a study of contradictions. So at roughly six feet tall, Doris Duke was very beautiful. And she was also the wealthiest girl in the world. And she really led her life like an alcoholic Amazonian Cruella DeVille. <laughs> no one was safe if they happened to be in Doris's crosshairs, particularly people she hired. And yet she was also cultured and interesting. She was a voracious traveler and art collector. She was dating men of color at a time when that was not looked fondly upon. She didn't give a damn, and you got to kind of love her for it, Laura. I mean, this is the woman who snubbed British royalty when they came to town. And as the heiress to a tobacco fortune, it was as if Doris was saying to the British royals that she was also royalty, the new royalty, the American royalty. And as the queen of Newport, she was now making up the rules. For decades, the death of Edward Torello was ruled an accident. Only recently, new evidence and an eyewitness, who was a paperboy at the time, has shed doubt about the crime scene. It's made us question not only Doris Duke's account, but the way in which the investigation was handled. So we're here to duke it out. That was my bad pun. Don't blame Laura for that one. Okay, <laughs> I, I came up with that one, okay? okay? But duke, we're going to duke it out on we're Doris gonna do, Duke. Yeah, you couldn't control yourself on that one. <laughs> 
So let's go back. How was Doris so wealthy? Doris was the daughter of James Buchanan, or Buck Duke, who actually developed this tobacco fortune. Basically, he was the first one to use this cigarette rolling machine and to make what we now see today as the modern cigarette, the uniform rolled cigarette. So he developed these huge tobacco fields in North Carolina and this large tobacco company and then invested that money into an energy company and wound up with a large fortune. Well, like, can you imagine? I mean, he invented the rolled cigarette, the cigarettes that we have in packets now. I cannot imagine the number of both the death toll and the fortune that have come from inventing the modern day cigarette. Now, part of the invention of the modern day cigarette, though, made it more appealing to women because it was looked upon as very masculine to roll your own cigarettes. Exactly. But if you had a ready-made cigarette, There was something elegant and more, quote, feminine about it that was appealing also Mm -hmm. to women. So he got women smoking too. Whoopee. But he was basically penalized with monopolizing on the tobacco. And this was something called dark patch tobacco in North Carolina. North Carolina really is the tobacco nexus in America. So he had garnered like 90% of the tobacco. Anyway, if you're interested in it, there's a whole history of what happened with the tobacco farmers in North Carolina. Suffice to say, Buchanan became very, very wealthy, although I read that he had grown up on like a one mule tobacco farm. So he is also this kind of American paragon of living the American dream. He had a vision. He came up with this popularizing rolled cigarettes and made an absolute fortune out of it. And he was a great philanthropist and made large contributions. He made a huge contribution to Trinity College, which was actually renamed Duke University. And he made large contribution to hospitals and large donations to all kinds of philanthropic. Let's talk Duke University because we are Ivy League murders. Duke is very beautiful. I've been there something called the Research Triangle. And not so long ago, I think in the past few years, they actually invented like an invisibility cloak. (laughs) Truly, it's limited, but they can make certain objects disappear basically to the human eye. That's kind of interesting. I read about that. They also have a lemur collection, which I think- Oh yeah, actually, I I, I did read that. (laughs) And you know, Duke's kind of considered, I mean, it would be like a little ivy, Oh, absolutely. Duke's an excellent school. An excellent school. Yeah. Right up there. Interestingly, Duke, I mean, Trinity was founded in 1838, but the renaming of Duke was 1924. So it's, you know, we're used to our Ivies. Harvard was founded in 1636. That's right. So Duke is actually a newer school than we're used to. And it's actually, for what we're used to, they've accomplished so much. And it's also quite well-known, Sarah, for basketball. Oh, very much so. And a big rivalry also with North Carolina. With North Carolina. They've won five national championships. But both these North Carolina (laughs) schools are all tobacco money, man, too. It's it's all about basketball. It's all about tobacco down there. I'm going to have to give a shout out to like one of my favorite tobacco movies. Oh, Do you know which one it is? Yes, I do. Thank you for smoking. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great one. So if anyone wants to explore the tobacco industry, that's a great movie. Movie. So Buck Buchanan, he dies when Doris is 13. And he, he does. She's his only child. She's his only child and he leaves her the bulk of his assets to her, which is equivalent today of $1.5 billion. And he also leaves her with this terrible legacy of telling her that never to trust anyone. That's right. With the sense of make sure someone's not choosing you for your money. How do you know, Sarah, if you're worth $1.5 billion when you're 13, how would you ever know if people love you for you or your money? I really wouldn't know. So I mean, I I don't know. I know people like me for me because I have no money. (laughs) So Doris grows up kind of shy and a bit awkward. She's very tall, and so she's kind of gangly, I think, when she's a bit younger. You look at videos from when she was growing up at Rough Point, let's say, and she looks very leggy and kind of like a... a, She looks kind of regal to me, kind of elegant and regal. Yes, exactly. She's roughly six feet tall, and she does. She kind of has this elegant, very serious look. So Doris wants to go to college, but her mother doesn't have any intention of allowing her 
that type of independence. So instead, what does she do? Well, she does what any young woman of her social standing would do, and she makes her debut. And after that, a two-year world tour is planned, where she'll be presented to the queen. It's during this time that Doris develops her love of art. She uses time to explore and acquire art from around the world. Her taste is eclectic and on par with any great collector. So this made me a little sad because I'm thinking her family, you know, basically runs Duke University and she's not able to go to college. And what a waste because she really is very, as we see going forward, she's really a very brilliant woman. She's very brilliant. And in fact, it's not like she takes that fortune that she's given and squanders it. She's so smart about stocks. She buys Apple when it first comes on the... She does. Yeah, she buys that, that, all yeah. kinds of tech. But I just think yeah. of her as what a great art history major she would have been. Or... She's a very forward-thinking woman. She I really mean, is. She's a, ahead of her time. Yeah, she was a surfer. She was dating all kinds of different men. She was very forward-thinking. She didn't care what anybody thought about her that's because she had fuck you money before (laughs) people knew what fuck you money was (laughs) Uh, yeah she had to get away with murder money is what she had actually she yeah Yeah. that's true doris personified the 20th century woman rich and beautiful and in charge of her own destiny she even wrote for harper's bazaar and reported from war-torn countries That was pretty revolutionary at the time for a woman to be doing stuff like that. And she actually, I think, got as much press for her being this forest correspondent than for what she was actually doing. But it was pretty interesting that a woman was out doing these things that were typically male. This is 50s and 60s. I think it's the power of her personality that was able to live her life the way she wanted. Right. There were no limits. Right. And also having incredibly deep pockets, but that's okay. So the end of the tour signals a need for a change, and it is at this time that Doris would marry James H.R. Cromwell, maybe to get away from her mother, I'm not sure. So he had political aspirations, and he really resented the attention that she got, basically. It was not a marriage that was, like, made in heaven. That was typically how things went back then. You know, you went from your parents to your husbands, and I think she wanted to get away from her mother. It's true, and sadly, though, she begins living, I'm not quite sure, after her divorce from After her, yeah, after her divorce, which is quite scandalous at the time. What happened, Sarah? To be pregnant out of wedlock at the time that she was, was very, very scandalous. And she has no apologies about it. She has a child out of wedlock. Her daughter, Arden, was born and lived less than 24 hours. And I think this really affected her. And she was infertile after this. So yeah, I think that really kind of sealed the deal in her loneliness and isolation. And she became increasingly paranoid after that time. And She had 200 servants, and she kind of kept them close, but wanted all outsiders kept away. She did, and she retreated to Hawaii. She had a house there called Shangri-La, which was amazing, and it's now a museum for Islamic art, and it is absolutely beautiful in Hawaii. And after her daughter died, she retreated there and just kind of grieved, essentially. Always a heavy drinker and drug user, her alcoholism increased, and... She added barbiturates, which is a pretty dangerous combination, Sarah. Yeah, and it really made her frequently irrational and needy. And this really does play into a lot of her relationships, I think. So then her second and last marriage was to an international playboy. His name was Porfirio Riberosa, and he was really a famous playboy. Yeah, I mean, he pretty much dated every... Famous woman of the day. Ava Gardner, Marilyn Monroe, all of them. All the big movie stars. I have to tell the Pepper Mills. Yeah, well, so he was famous for more than his charms. (laughs) He was really famous for his, well, let's say he was lucky in the male endowment department. His name was Ruberosa. And apparently in French cafes, his endowments were so famous that instead of asking for a pepper mill, the French waiters would say to themselves, pass me the Riberosa. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a uh, visual for you, I think. <laughs> she really loved him, I think. You know, yeah, and- she, or she was, had some type of an obsession with him. And her arch rival, who was the other richest woman in the world, Barbara Hutton, 
wound up marrying him after her, which was... Even though she had bought Riverosa like a whole stable full of horses, I can't help but think that there wasn't a little bit of an F you in him going to Hutton. Tell us a little bit about... I'm just curious. I don't know that much about Barbara Hutton. Barbara and Doris were actually born about a week apart, and Barbara was the Woolworth heiress. So they were kind of the two golden girls growing up and were each at each other's debut. Barbara kind of aged a lot worse than Doris did. They were both consumed by drugs and alcohol. Barbara really squandered her money and died actually with very, very little money. Barbara had one son who actually died and she pretty much deteriorated after that. Her son Lance died in a plane crash. Oh, right. Both actually kind of sad examples, but Barbara Hutton actually didn't really do as much for society as Doris did. They were kind of great rivals from when they were very little in the press. They were always compared to one another. Oh, I see. Okay. So this is who Doris Duke's second husband leaves her for. That can't have been easy for Doris either. I don't think she took losing very well. And I think losing Riverosa to Barbara Hutton probably was not. Barbara Hutton was not looking very good at that time if you look at the wedding pictures. I mean, he was clearly marrying Barbara Hutton for the money. Right. But I think Riverosa was probably was a very charming man. Oh, very charismatic. Yeah. He was sort of one of the almost like before famous for being famous was a thing. He was kind of famous for being famous. He was like a race car driver and like a playboy. Like that was his job, being a playboy and a race car driver. So after Riberosa, Doris continued to have love affairs and pretty outrageous love affairs and buy extravagant properties and that she planned to redecorate. And she really did devote a lot of her time to collecting art And she continued to decorate many of her homes. And she bought Napoleon's original war room and put it in one of her homes. Like, that's the level of art collecting that she did. Yeah, I mean, I guess, what you know, when you can have the absolute best, there's no limit. You're absolutely right. And I think it was through this passion that she met Eduardo Torello. And so let's talk a little bit about Torello, because he is very interesting in his own right. He had started out doing acting and working in cabaret and singing and then he got more and more into films and doing interior design for really big people he did some sets for elizabeth taylor and dennis hopper and sharon tate he actually had started out i think originally doing hats and costumes for hedda hopper and luella parsons the gossip columnist so he was really kind of in the hollywood set and starting to kind of ingratiate himself into that and starting to work on some movies and and sets, I think, when he met Doris Duke. And all the accounts about Eduardo was that he just seemed like he had that bright star around him. People said that he would just brighten your day when he came into your life. He was openly gay, which at the time was kind of unusual. I mean, maybe not in that set necessarily. Right. But... Yeah, a little maybe more acceptable in kind of that Hollywood. Probably, probably, privately, it was kept quiet. But within his friends, it was okay. As he had a lover who was a sculptor, very, very talented, and apparently a great expert on fine art. Doris, once she started working with him, wouldn't even buy something without his approval. And we know she's a great expert. So. She came to start working with him and to completely rely on his expertise for these great pieces. You and I have seen some of these pieces. I mean, this is really the best of the best. Exactly. And so they really had a deep friendship for seven years. And now Torello was very charming, very handsome guy, gay. And I'm not sure if Doris, what the nature of their relationship was. I don't think it was sexual. But somehow, I think Doris had a real e-day fix about him, whether it was keeping him as a companion or not. And once Torello started to move more independently, his stars started to rise. He started getting more and more jobs in Hollywood. He really wanted to spend more time on the West Coast. And Doris did not like this. Not at all. Now, Doris lives between several properties, between New Jersey, between Rhode Island and Hawaii. 
she's living between all these properties. And part of the way she kind of sets up hiring him is she doesn't pay him a tremendous amount of money, but she kind of gives him rooms in all of her houses. There's a lot of perks involved. He's traveling with her to all these great locations. But so it's a great opportunity for him just to go to all these wonderful places. And so I think initially it's a wonderful opportunity, but as he starts to get more and more opportunities in Hollywood and his star starts to rise there, Doris's possessiveness and her neediness is hindering his Hollywood career. So he kind of can't do both. Mind you, their relationship was really, at least on her part, I'm not sure about his, she's drinking a lot at this point. She's taking a lot of pills at this point. She really is devolving in many ways. Right. I think very codependent, very needy. Her relationships aren't really relationships of equals. She's the boss. She's in charge. And a lot of people said she could be violent. I mean, she once pulled a a knife on one of her lovers, Castro, who was a piano player, a singer. Oh, yeah. That cost her a lot of money, actually, because he threatened to sue her, and she had to pay up quite a lot of money for that. Yes and no, because during a really bad argument, she slashed his arm with a knife. Then Castro sued Doris. But then she basically strong arms him. Strong arms him. And yeah, but he winds up with a bunch of perks from that, doesn't he? From what I read, he was sort of forced to drop the suit. Forced to drop the suit. But she, I- she was not. Okay, here's what I read about her as well, is that a lot of this, we have to give credit to Peter Lance. I mean, it's all, this is all about Peter. He's Peter- written an excellent book called The Homicide at Rough Point. And it really goes into very fine detail. He's a journalist, and it goes into very fine detail about her relationships. So in his book, Lance talks about how Doris Duke had a couple of knickknacks go missing from one of her houses. So she hires a private investigator to talk to like 220 staff members or 30 staff members or maybe even Mm. more. She wants to get down to the bottom. These are a couple of knickknacks. He actually gives some lie detector tests, which he pays out of his own pocket to the tune of like 20 grand and thinks, okay, I'm working for Doris Duke. And he had to fight and fight and fight her. She countersued him. She said she never consented to giving them. Oh, lie she detect- did that all the time. This is. The sort of frustrating thing about Doris Duke, it it just doesn't seem logical in some ways. It it was like these petty little wars that, and you never won against someone like Doris Duke. Right, because she was so litigious and her pockets were so deep. She would hire people to do work on the house. They would do a great deal of work, then she wouldn't pay them. She could out-lawyer anybody. She would just keep the lawsuit's going until somebody just backed down. Until they just absolutely gave up. She is such a contradictory person. I think she had nothing better to do, Sarah. I think, so. I think she just had nothing better. Sitting in that huge, these huge mansions just with nothing to do. She had no real interpersonal relationships that were kind of equal. This is what she occupied her time with. She was an alcoholic, which she was paranoid. She was needy. She was, I just think that her, she wasn't logical. Alcoholic, rich, or poor, you have the same characteristics, and she actually had the money to be able to go with it. Exactly. So this is the climate in which Eduardo Torello is trying to break off from Doris and create his own life. So on October 6, 1966, Eduardo Torello and Doris Duke are actually going to pick up a reliquy of St. Ursula. I'll tell you a little bit more details about this reliquy and its significance. However, the story originally of how this, quote, accident is presented is that they're driving out the gates. Well, let's back up for a second and just say that Eduardo is come to rough point just to get the rest of his things. They rent a 1966 Dodge station wagon, and he's going to gather up the rest of his things, and he's agreed to go with her to do this kind of last errand of looking at this reliquy with her. And she wants his advice on it before she picks it up and makes the final payment on it, and he's agreed to this. So it's kind of like this last 
little thing he's going to do for her. It's kind of a quid pro quo. Right. He's moving his stuff out of rough point. Right. She wants to go pick up this reliquy. Now, people have warned him, friends and stuff have kind of said, don't go back there to end this relationship. Send for your things. She's volatile. She isn't rational. So people have kind of warned him. But he thinks he can handle Doris. They've been friends for almost a decade. He thinks that this is not going to be a problem. So he goes and flies there and she picks him up at the airport and they get ready to go look at this reliquy and this is where we're at. If you can imagine, there are these big iron gates at the end of a very long driveway. The gates are on Bellevue Avenue. Torello stops the station wagon about 15 feet from the gate. He goes from the drivers. He's been driving. He leaves the driver's seat. He goes to the gate to take off the heavy chain so that he can open up the gates so that the station wagon can go through the gates. Obviously, this is before there were any remotes or any, right. this you know, 1960s. Right. You have to manually open these large gates. And this is a monster station wagon. Right. Like, these things are built like tanks. And these basically. are big gates. Sarah and yeah. I were just there. So you yeah. have to open and close these gates in this large estate every time you go in or out. After he takes off the chain, Doris gets into the driver's seat for some unknown reason and drives the car into Eduardo Torello. This is the story, that it was an accident, that it's, she, she makes the claim, oh, I hit the gas instead of the brake. He ends up dying. And so that's her story. Her story is that they have done this a hundred times before, that he gets out to open the gates and she moves into the driver's seat because she is going to drive the car through the gates and pick him up, right? Sounds logical. Just drive through and pick him up on the other side of the gates. However, she says she accidentally puts the car in drive and hits the gas and pushes him into the gates. So this is what Doris says happened. You're right. This, this is, is sort story. of the official story the official that, that's story. sold at the time. That's right. That is sold to the police at the time. That the police buy very willingly right. and, and, and co-sign on. Not what actually happened, but what the official story will be for decades. Let's talk about this particular investigation and what the collusion that happened here. First of all, the medical examiner, a guy by the name of McAllister, ended up being hired as Doris Duke's personal physician. And he acts almost like a guard dog for her in terms of the questioning and, oh gosh, she's so frail. By the way, she's hardly got any injuries at all. So let's talk a little bit about the first investigation of Doris Duke. So who are the players here? So we have Edward Angel, who's the first. Joseph Radish, who's a Newport police chief. We have Fred Newton, who's the accident investigator. So we have a few key players here. But what we're going to see is what we've seen in many other cases. I'm thinking Ann Woodward. I'm thinking... Ted Kennedy. This really reminds me a lot of Chappaquiddick, where you see something happen and then the police kind of go in immediately and kind of are working for the powerful person and they're running the show. And Doris is kind of running the show from the very beginning. And the accident is really not investigated correctly. It's not investigated correctly. She's surrounded by lawyers. They have what's called the bedroom interview, and apparently she's on her huge bed, and her room is this like luxurious suite looking out onto the Atlantic. She's got her two huge German Shepherd guard dogs (laughs) flanking her on her bed for the, quote, bedroom interview. In fact, Lance, in his book, even says that the affidavit that she signed about this, which is basically a doctored document, It's essentially her lawyers massaging the story to remove Doris from all culpability. Well, I think so much of this is Dr. Sarah because Edward Angel, who's the first officer on the scene, when he shows up, he basically says that he sees the woman behind the car and the man under the car. 
And I think that is actually what really happened, is that Edward Terrell winds up under the car, not pegged against the gate, but under the car. And these are the two different narratives we're going to hear here. Yes. And one is Doris's, which is against the gate. And one's a lie, by the way, and one's the truth. And so the actual truth... Because what she says is he's pinned against the gate. Now, if that were true, he would have a lot of damage to his lower body. Exactly. And the autopsy contradicts that. Right. Because he's essentially crushed on one side underneath the car. He's basically crushed in his upper body and has no damage to his lower body. And it would actually be the opposite if he was crushed against the gate. So we know that he wasn't crushed against the gate. Exactly. Doris busted through the gate and they believe, given the injury, that Torello went up on the hood on of the, the hood co- of the car, car and falls onto the road and Doris drives over him. Yeah. And smashes into a tree. Right. And there was a witness that saw that. So she went, he went up, she pauses, and then goes forward. It's more horrendous than that. The witness, who was a paper boy at the time, mm-hmm. a guy named Bob Walker, he hears, he doesn't see, he's an ear witness. He doesn't see. Right. And he's the, the new accident. witness who's come forward after Peter Lance's book. And what he says is he hears Torello basically screaming no because he sees her coming towards him with the car. And mind you, you had told me that the car is about 30 or 40 feet away from the gates and smashed into a tree. From the, I think from it dragged the, the body 40 feet. Sarah and I were just there, and it actually is a pretty, the street isn't that wide. The car crashes across the street. Right. With Torella underneath the car. And then Bob Walker says, essentially, Doris Duke hears the like tick, 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 tick of his bicycle like coming up. She whips around. She shouts at him, like, get out of here. Right. And so he stops. Are you okay? He offers her help. And he says he sort of tries to look around the car. And the way he describes it is she crab walks. I'm taking that to mean that she's sort of trying to block his view of the car. Now, it may be that, look, he was a 13-year-old kid. Maybe she's trying to be somewhat protective of him. But I think he asks her again, are you okay? Do you need help? And she really yells at him, like, get the hell out of here. So at that point, he bikes off. He also doesn't see any injury from her. He sees no blood. And later, they do report that she's injured. So then there becomes the question of whether she's self-injured. So interestingly enough, this is a new development that we have, this testimony. But it's backed up because Bob Walker apparently told this story to his father, to several friends, to several military and his, friends. And his father said, do not mess with Doris Duke. Right. She will have you killed. Basically. Right. He like, said, I don't want my son getting hit by a car someday. And by accident. By accident. Friend. Let's back up just a teeny bit because what is Edward Angel, who was the first responding officer, what does he say? He says that Terrell is under the car, but he's a rookie. He's new on the job, so I don't think his word is taken as seriously. But the Newport police chief, Joseph Radish, he kind of comes in and falls right in line with Doris's story. He does. And what is curious about this, according to Peter Lance, a lot of these reports and crime scene photos, they just disappeared. Pretty much all of the records disappeared. And... We can talk about this later, but kind of what happens to a lot of these people is interesting after this as well, because you can kind of follow the money and see Joseph Radish, who's the Newport police chief. He winds up retiring two years later with several condos. And you just kind of, I mean, the whole thing is just doesn't really pass the smell test, Sarah. No, it doesn't at all. But at the time, it's so sad, too, because you had brought this up, Laura, where something like this happens. And the way it's presented is so horrifying. What did you say about it? You said, oh gosh, someone died, but... I think we're going to see probably would become clear as we talk more. And I think this is very clear with Kennedy. And there's somewhat that attitude of somebody died, but look at all the good this person did. So it's kind of like... We don't really want to punish them. And this is a very big attitude in Boston about Ted Kennedy. It's like, you know, he killed somebody, but 
look what he did for all the elderly in Massachusetts. It's like we're kind of balancing out this bad deed with all the good. And I feel like there's a lot of that with Doris Duke as well. Well, it's true because I looked at some of the articles at the time and it mentions the accident and then it's, it's almost like a puff piece about her. It is mind boggling how it goes from that. There's this guy's brutally killed and it then essentially just a platform for how wonderful Doris Duke and all the things she's done for Newport and... It's it's inconceivable to me. But. She didn't do that much for Newport until this accident happened. That's true. She was actually pretty nasty. <laughs> right. Um, but she got pretty willing to do a lot for Newport after this accident happened, which is pretty interesting. Can and- I tell a little story about the reliquy? Sure. Okay. So the what they were going to go pick up, which was the reliquy of Ursula, uh, she does. She doesn't obviously go pick it up that day, but so a reliquy is the the is a container of. Uh, oh no! Hold on one second. Okay, this is a total digression, and this is actually from Peter Lance's book as well. Uh, but so the reliquy that they were on their way to pick up, uh, Torella and Doris Duke, is something called the reliquy of Ursula. Ursula was a fourth century Breton princess who who the Romans wanted her to marry a pagan, but even though she was Catholic, I mean, she was, you know, she was a Christian. And so she took a, a large group of women, women who are all virgins to go speak to the Pope, to beg him to not force this marriage because it was against her Christian christian values on the way there they were captured by the huns the germans at the time who raped them killed them and they were all martyred essentially so ursula uh ursula became sainted by this essentially and her so the reliquy is you know would have maybe some piece of of ursula bone or you know of uh, some part of, of ursula in it but the significance of Ursula, and she was somebody who was collected by J.P. Morgan and other robber barons, mm-hmm. was that this is somebody, because of her status and money as a princess, um, she could buy her way into divinity. So that is the significance Interesting. for, for, for Ursula. My and on that note, uh, after the accident, Doris kind of tries to try to buy her way into divinity. So in the years right after the accident, she starts to really ingratiate herself to the Newport community and donate really large amounts of money, uh, something she had not done uh, in the past within the community. And she starts to embrace some of the things that she really had been against in the past, like the cliff walk. And she found the Newport Restoration Foundation which initially is set up to restore, I think, 84 uh, historic homes and buildings in Newport. And she sets this up, and, I mean, she just kind of becomes this champion of Newport. Sort of, yeah. But again, even that is, in Lance's book, he talks about Mm -hmm. how she takes historical buildings from the poorer sections, you know, and, and she moves them into closer to you know, Bellevue Ave. I mean, she t- she takes the, the jewels from these rundown areas. Oh, yeah, these, I don't you know, think she, she just, was... You know, <laughs> so, in other words, I mean, but she does do a lot for the restoration of Newport. Hurrah. However, not to... Again, we're, we're, we're duking it out here because, uh, because I in pushing back on that, she never gets charged criminally for this, you know, her the accident is deemed... An accident, you know, that sorry, the 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 um the death of Eduardo Torello is is deemed an accident. And his family is really left baffled. And so they actually sue her civilly. They, you know, they they, do. T- they take du- Doris Duke to court and 
you would think that she would be somewhat apologetic. You would think that she would be... I mean, she, they were friends. They were very I mean, good you, you would just think with all the money she had and this terrible accident and that she would just kind of settle with them because he was her friend. And uh, But no, no, no. She, she, during the course of the investigation, she sullied his names, name. She, they used his sexuality against him. Absolutely. You know, which, and, was, which was really cruel and brutal and at that time. And they dragged it out, and it wasn't until 1971, and it would just, you know, she, she used her lawyers just to drag, you know. Right, and, and his sexuality had nothing to do with the accident whatsoever and and she used it you know to to make headway in court and it was just terrible what she did and the family wound up getting I mean she was found negligent but they wound up getting very little money only about seventy five thousand dollars and uh and in you know even that I think she was sort of bitterly against one thing I I had read as well though is that there was somebody and again, this is sort of hearsay, but I'm going to say it anyway. There was a, a Irish guy by the name of Burns that she, I think she was involved with him uh, later on in life. And uh, and he says, he says what she says about Torello is she all but admits to the fact that she murdered him. And she says, you know, nobody, nobody uh, two times me. And so even though Torello wasn't a romantic partner, Nobody two times me, meaning he was going to leave her. He was going to abandon her. And I really do think it was her incredible loneliness and, and, and neediness and, uh, you know, that, that she couldn't deal with, with him, to, you know, leaving her. Absolutely. And I mean, if this happened today, there would be, a, you know, you would be, have got an alcohol, blood, a blood alcohol test. I'm sure she was drunk. I think this was probably an impulsive kind of irrational decision to just hit the, you know, hit the gas and run him over. She was angry. Yeah, but you know, I think it's almost more than that in a funny way. I think what Eduardo Torello had was a gift. It had the generous, he had a generosity of spirit where he, everybody just said he was a wonderful guy. He would bring you flowers. He would bring you up when you, when you felt down. He, he had a gift for making people feel good about themselves. And, and I, and I, I wonder if in a certain part, someone like Doris, who could not ever, no matter how much money she had, she could never touch that. She couldn't connect with people. She couldn't. And so, so in a, in a way that I, I think that is, there is something possessive, but also very envious, you know, in her relationship with, uh, with him. And, and the, the circumstances of, you know, things had happened to Doris, uh, Ribonoso had died. She had just broken up with her you know, with Castro, who was her lover, who, and there was a big fight with that. Um, but in any case, so, and I think we have to look at, at the, at these situations and, and how these people with wealth and privilege kind of buy their way out of these, these situations and how there does become this narrative builds up that they, that it kind of mitigates what they did. Yes. And I think we see that in a lot of these cases. And, you know, we saw it so much with Kennedy. And I mean, it, I mean, you know, Sarah, I mean, that's pretty much the narrative around Boston about yes. Kennedy. And right. I mean, I think that it's somewhat the narrative about Doris Duke. Is you know, she it, did so much good. So one guy died. Right. But no, no. But I think that, I mean, the difference to me. If, if what this new evidence shows in the Doris Duke case is that, you know, that she intentionally, she ran a human being over in a car, in, in, in a tank of a car, mm -hmm. you know, I, I mean, what, what Ted Kennedy did was unconscionable by letting a young woman die in a, in a yeah, car. Ted Kennedy, you know, you know, uh, but had, I, had, but had, I, had scrambled eggs the next morning in a polo shirt while a woman was at the bottom of a lake. Well, no, absolutely. But in I terms mean, of in, if, if intent has any importance at all, then what Doris Duke did 
to Eduardo Torello is is you know it's it's beyond. Uh, well, I think I think they're both pretty unconscionable, and uh, and and I don't think either should be mitigated by. You know, but the good things they've done, I agree. I, I mean, agree I, you know, but you know, the one thing we haven't really, one thing we haven't really brought up, is her relationship also later on in life with Bernard Lafferty, her Irish butler, <laughs> and uh, so that's a whole other chapter in Doris Duke's life that is very, very interesting, and also complicated legally as well, because Lafferty. There's some speculation that Lafferty was after her money, that he, you know, was uh, basically ingratiated himself in with her and essentially overdosed her and uh, and then became the trustee to, to her and to just, her estates. Just so we can, uh, just so everybody knows, Lafferty was her Irish gay alcoholic butler. Right who she became extremely dependent on and uh, and became really her companion and friend and then uh she w- she left everything to him in the well she did but that was sort of the latest permutation permutation of, of, yeah. of her of her will and, and uh, uh, he kind of got the last laugh because he he wound up settling with them and letting go of most of it, but he still maintained a large annual income, and he had a big house in Bel Air. I mean, he only lived a few years, but he, you know, passed away in his sleep in a big, huge mansion in Bel Air. Yeah, at the age of fifty-one, though, they, they there's some speculation about that as well that there was a very steady stream of alcohol and drugs being fed to him. Yeah, as well. so it, it's a. It, that's a whole other interesting chapter in, you know. It is, and I think that was kind of a mutually toxic relationship. Yeah. And it, it actually a good movie if anyone wants to see it on uh, Bernard and Doris. Yeah, but that's way, way uh, sanitized. I mean, it's great. It's got Susan Sarandon in it, who's wonderful. Yeah, and, very sanitized. You know, yeah. and, and Ralph Fiennes and everything like that. But it is a very dressed up, attractive <laughs> Hollywood version of what what happened right. with the I think we know alcoholism and drug addiction isn't quite as glamorous even when you put it in a nice house. That's right. But you know so the Doris Duke the, what I love about this case is that it's it's got everything. This this case has such teeth. It's got her this big glamorous imperious woman who is you know boxes with no gloves on. She's crazy. Uh, she gets away with murder, but she also is an interesting person. And and the the you know the, the, her foundation has done a lot of good. You know it it has. To, but to your point, the so this is what I love about this case is it's got the history, and it's got the glamour of like the fifties and the sixties, even into the seventies. But it's also current because they have reopened the case. Right, and the Duke name is, is is current, and and I mean it's still relevant because of you know Duke University and all the things the Duke name continue. I mean, we were just at rough point. I mean, it continues to be relevant. I think it also shows the duality of people. I mean, we see this a lot now. I think maybe even with our cancel culture, but people can be capable of goodness and you know and bad sure. and complicated, and complicated. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and we. We, you know, so I get, you know, it doesn't maybe mitigate the bad, but we can't say that, you know, Ted Kennedy, he did do, do good or, or Doris Duke, she did do good. We've, we've been witness to some of the good that she's done. Right. So these things definitely are good things, but it doesn't take away from the fact that she, you know, she did do some, some great harm as well. Yeah, we'd be curious to to hear back from our listeners what you guys think about the new case being, you know, the the case being reopened, the new witnesses. Highly, highly recommend Peter Lance's book, Homicide at Rough Point. Uh, you know, very, very good, um, excellent journalism and uh, and a great read. So I think we're even going to have an opportunity to talk to him, Sarah. Yeah, I think so too. And maybe we could, you know, see if listeners have any sp- specific questions for him. We're not done with you, Doris. We're <laughs> we're not 
No, it's it's definitely a fascinating case, and it's a case I think that in you know actually it's a case that was just reopened. So I think it's a case I would actually like to see uh, Torella's legacy restored somewhat. Maybe you know for his family, uh, and maybe you know maybe some some I don't know how that perhaps can be done, but at least to see his legacy. And I think that's happening now is it's being kind of renewed. There's no doubt in my mind he would have been a fixture in Hollywood. Absolutely. You know, he would have been, you know, hanging around with, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the big stars. He just had that kind of magnetism and that positive, you know, he really sounded like a, an incredibly talented, beautiful person. And, you know, I think anyway, and... uh yeah, I feel like we would have been talking about him in, in you know, our, our Betsy Bloomingdale episode. Or, or, you know, he definitely would have showed up someplace else had he lived. And uh, I think that, you know, it, it, you know it, in a way, it's quite good that this new information's come up when we're talking about him again and we're talking about... Yeah, and, just, and just to see, the, see justice being done. You know, seeing his, you know, seeing you know that uh the new evidence and what the the narrative of this having been an accident is is it's not true so and you know i think another thing that that is quite disappointing to me especially as a big advocate of law enforcement and i think you know we saw this in martha's vineyard we haven't covered chapaquitic yet but i i a little i'm a little obsessed with it and i i've, I've read it quite a bit and these kind of local police departments and these really affluent towns and they're kind of run, get run by these wealthy people. And, and that's unfortunate. We kind of see that here with the Newport police chief getting really kind of right from the beginning. Getting rich. Getting rich, yeah. <laughs> now, you know, we see the police chief retiring and I think now maybe internal affairs would be looking at his condos, but that didn't happen back then. Exactly. Anyway, yeah, we look forward to your thoughts and uh, hope you enjoyed our episode. Bye-bye. Murder. Murder. Murder.